Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Mandy Walls. Find me at LNXCHK on Twitter. All right, welcome back. This is another book club episode of Page It to the Limit. This year, we're trying something out. We're going to go through some of these books that maybe your coworkers have recommended to you. Maybe you heard them recommended at a conference talk. There's a huge list of them out there, and we're going to tackle a few of them this year. So welcome back to our February episode. And this time, we are covering After the Gold Rush by Steve McConnell. If that's a familiar name to you, you may be propping a door open with his book Code Complete, which is absolutely a tome. I think it's a thousand pages. He's a, he was a prolific writer at Microsoft, actually, in the late 90s into the early 2000s. With me this month, Sonale, please introduce yourself to the people. Hi there. I'm waving hello for reasons. But uh, yeah, I'm a software engineer. I've been doing software development for 10 years now. I've been at PagerDuty for almost five years. I think it's like next week. Wow. Like as of, as of recording the show, like I'm, it's five years next week or something like that. I live in a place called Thunder Bay, Ontario. You might call it the Midwest of Canada. It's sort of like right in the middle there, closer to Minnesota than Toronto. Yeah, I looked it up. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So uh, what kind of work do you do for PagerDuty? You're a software engineer. What are you working on? Right now, our team is working on some stuff. It's still very early stages, just about... It, PagerDuty has made a number of acquisitions recently. Like, that's that's obviously very public. Most recently, we acquired Jelly. And so our team is still very early days on trying to make all of that together and feel like one product. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to have some Jelly folks on the, on the show at some point. Nice. Too, so. so tackling this book, fortunately... It's very short. So it's about 160 some odd pages, I think. So from that perspective, it's very nice. It started out, the history on it is that it was a collection of essays on, well, I don't know that they were on a blog, but on McConnell's site for a while, and he collected them up. And there is a second edition, because uh, this edition, after the gold rush, is actually out of print. But like, you can get it at used bookstores. I mean, the copy that I have right now has a sticker on it for $2.99, right? But it looks like it's never been opened. So it's out there. The follow-up, though, is still in print. It's called Professional Software and Development. Professional Software Development, you can find it other places, but it's not, there's no e-version. So I go with the, the cheap versions for things that are paper-based because that is what it is. So that's our dude. He also had a regular column for IEEE Software for a long time, did some editing, uh, I think, for some ACM stuff. And like I said before, wrote Code Complete, which is, maybe where folks are familiar with him from. So this collection uh, was originally written in the late 90s. So we're going back in time a little bit, but we have the benefit of hindsight on some of these things. And the whole sort of scope of the essays is to figure out, is software development actually a profession in the way that architecture and medicine and like accounting and those kinds of things are a profession. This key comes back around every few years anyway. Like there's there's this continuing on and off debate as to whether you can even call yourself a software engineer, right? Because that has like actual meaning for other industries. It has a legal meaning in Canada for sure. Yeah. 
I called myself a software engineer in the introduction, and probably technically I'm not supposed to do that in Canada. But working for an American company, you end up in these awkward middle grounds. That is technically my title. What can you do? But yeah, one of the things that was super interesting to me was like, in the book, they look back on the 1960s and how things had evolved from the 1960s to 1999. And almost as much time has passed since then. Absolutely. Like 1999 was the height of the dot-com bubble in Canada. There was the big company, Nortel Networks. At one point, it was literally a third of the Toronto Stock Exchange. Wow. Yeah. Uh, So that was still huge. And Ottawa was going to be the Silicon Valley of the North. Uh, And obviously, a lot has changed since then. Nortel went bankrupt. They don't exist anymore. And other stuff has bubbled up in the meanwhile. Yeah, absolutely. Things have have definitely changed from that perspective. And like, he kind of touches on that a little bit, but like kind of is without that context, I think, in a certain extent, like he's kind of looking at software development without looking at it from across the entire economy, which was kind of interesting, because now we're looking at where software goes, the entire economy goes, really, like, in the US, you don't look at the New York Stock Exchange without looking at the big software companies that are on it and how things move there. So super interesting there. But yeah, so he gets into into some of the early stuff as far as like what folks were working on, what they were thinking of, and then looking at what engineering means and how it compares. And there's like there's a couple of places like in Canada, there's a legal definition of what an engineer is. Like you have a license, you get the iron ring. There's like a whole mythology around that kind of of stuff. And you're liable if things go wrong. Yeah, I don't have a lot of experience with that. Like it's just the career isn't quite intersected. Like pager duty is probably the closest place where like we actually advertise ourselves for like healthcare type use cases. Yeah. And so it's definitely like an existential thing to think about. Like if somebody misses a page, there is an outside chance that somebody's life could be affected by that. And that's something to take seriously. Like maybe PagerDuty should have some professional engineers on staff. It's curious. Like it's weird that we've gotten by without it so far. It kind of is. Yeah, absolutely. In the, one of the early chapters, he's talking about like early efforts on like licensure for software engineers. And there's like one program and there's still one program in Texas where you can get a professional engineer license as a software engineer. Yeah, it does feel like that's it's maybe a little bit more available than it was. Like a lot of places have software engineering programs nowadays that it didn't in 1999. Like I did the briefest Google. I didn't do like statistics on this or anything, but it seems like a lot of universities have both computer science and software engineering programs. So you can kind of choose between the two. And it does feel like in general, like nobody's saying that it's an art that you can't teach anybody. I mean, that that feels like a silly argument to me in the first place, because obviously there there are art schools, there are art classes. We teach art. We teach art. So it feels silly to suggest that even if it wasn't art, like you couldn't train in it. But it does feel like it is more on the profession side of things nowadays. Like there's more specialization than I think it was talking about, like backend developers, front end developers, mobile developers, embedded AI, AI data engineers, yeah. yeah, database reliability, SRE, DevOps. Even if you don't think DevOps should be a role, sometimes it is. That's a debate <laughs> for another pod. Never mind like the video game industry. Like there's so much specialization there. That's crazy town, yeah. There's definitely more of a profession around all of that than there was in 1990, probably. Although I think even then, like, it was weird to me that he didn't talk about an embedded engineering because I think that was already a thing then. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's always been part of aerospace and aeronautics and space exploration and all that kind of stuff. NASA's always had embedded engineers. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's super weird. And then, like, some of the stuff, too, like, I went looking. I got super curious about some of these software engineering programs. My background's computer science. I have undergraduate and graduate degrees in computer science. Me too. And not software engineering. And I went looking at these software engineering programs. I'm like, these fools are taking fluid dynamics and like <laughs> vector calculus. I had a minor in math. So yeah, I took differential <laughs> equations, but I've never needed them for anything. So it was super interesting to look at what that actually means and how that differs from what we do in the industry. No, it's true. So I came up with the, it was a computer science degree with a software engineering option. Okay. So that was at Carleton University in Ottawa. It wasn't under the School of Engineering, it was still under the School of Math. But the software engineering course probably was my favorite, where you basically got to make a project over the course of the semester with four other people. And like, you know, you have to deal with the communication issues and the project planning issues. And they were trying to make us use this like UML tool that generates code for you, (laughs) which I'm glad everybody has moved away from. That's not a, that's not an issue anymore. Like not to say that UML diagramming is entirely useless. Like it definitely has its place. It's just like, don't generate your code out of it. (laughs) Yeah. It was a hot minute. That was rational. And and, uh, yeah, rational rows. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That was like 2003, 2004, whatever. Yeah. Kind of just after this book was written. And it's like, oh, goodness, the dot-com bubble just bust. And did I make a terrible mistake? (laughs) Oh, no, what have I done? Oh, you were still pretty sure it was going to be fine. And it was. So it turned out. Yeah, it turned out. It turned out. Yeah. But there was definitely an existential moment in there. Yeah, it it does feel like there's more respect for it as a profession, but definitely doesn't feel like licensing is as big of a deal. No. Like, it doesn't seem like anybody's really pushing for that. No, actually, no. And that was something else I looked up this morning, too. Like, because originally in the book, he's talking about IEEE and ACM. And like, ACM had a position, came out against licensure in like 2008, I want to say. And like, some of that stuff now is so old, it's not even on their new website. They don't even have this stuff documented anymore. So like, it seems, it feels like the entire industry has just kind of collectively said, we don't want to go this direction. And then in in the book, he talks a little bit about certification. He mentions a couple of things that no longer exist, which amuses me. Netware, I think, was the one. I'm like, oh, Jesus, do we all want to talk IPX? Do we need to do that? It was definitely fun diving into the history. Like, it's a very interesting time to have written this book right before the dot-com bubble burst. (laughs) Absolutely. Like, he gets into, like, certification. And looking back at that stuff, like, that time frame, too, like, MCSEs and, and that stuff was just coming about. So, like... I feel like we definitely went that direction, like professional certifications and language-based certifications versus anything that's like, oh, yeah, this is a general. Could you even license, like, you're a licensed Java software engineer? Yeah. And like, does anybody care about that? People do care about company certifications, though. Like, it feels like that's the shift that's happened. It's less about the individual and it's more about the company in general. So that's where you get things like PCI compliance for credit card handling, SOC 2 security compliance, which I think is still one of the big things that PagerDuty has over some of the smaller startups coming up. We're also going for FedRAMP level one. Uh, I think I'm pretty sure I'm allowed to talk about. Yeah, 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 we're public. Yeah, we're, that's public. <laughs> yeah, that's public information now, yeah. It's interesting that shift and sort of what implications that might have. That it's less about the individual and more about the company. Well, and that became part of it too, because he doesn't really talk too much about in any of the, in the chapters about like software as a group project, right? And like, talks a little bit about what is it the cmm certifications i've never worked anywhere with a cmm certification neither have i 
Yeah. And I'm not sure how how much they stand out anymore for like your average sort of shop. And I, I figure it's probably industry specific, like what vertical you're working oh, in. For sure. When this book was written, it's weird how he's almost disdainful of web development. Yes. But it kind of makes sense. This is the height of like desktop apps. Like even though it was the height of the dot-com bubble, like we're talking HTML. Yeah. We're talking maybe some JavaScript. We're talking Flash. Oh, I'm not sure JavaScript was, some of them might have been VB script even at that time. Oh, that's sure. that's probably true. Like JavaScript probably wasn't the main deal. No, it was still like, should it be JavaScript? Should it be something else? Like how should we do media in general? It was definitely still Flash though. Like that was starting to be the, the era of Flash. Oh, yes. <laughs> maybe that, even that was more 2001 though. So like web development, there was definitely money there, even if it was fake money a lot of the time, but it felt like real software development was still about desktop applications. It was about Office, you know, with version numbers instead of with years, never mind being like an entirely cloud-based thing. Yeah, definitely. No one had enough bandwidth to ship anything that way. So yeah, still getting no, CDs it's true. And- Nobody had the internet in your pocket. Like no. you had a candy bar phone, you texted. Yeah. <laughs> Nine nine nine. Yes, exactly. The T9. MSM Messenger, Hotmail. I forgot about Hotmail. Yes. <laughs> I definitely had a Hotmail account. Totally Hotmail. One thing he said that kind of stood out for me is like programmers who aren't paying attention could easily find themselves working as 21st century software janitors. And like I have had friends and colleagues who have unironically called themselves software janitors. And I'm like, yeah, like you want stuff to have a long life. Someone has to take care of it. Is that bad? I don't know. So that's interesting to bring up. Uh, I think the the book, even though it's talking about it in terms of desktop applications that would you know eventually get finished and get shipped, like it has this uh, notion of a ratio between like unplanned work and planned work. Yeah, I think that's still a good thing to think about. Like how much of this is pure maintenance work versus how much is what's a good ratio between maintenance and and new features and new features. Yeah. But also like the co-janitor thing that really stuck to me in reference to chat GPT. Like, sure. I don't think it's going to kill any software jobs tomorrow, but like, will an executive argue at some point that we should have a pay cut because they can get chat GPT to write the first iteration of something and we just have to tidy it up. Like that's, that's a bad kind of co-janitor where I would, that would suck. I would not want that. <laughs> well, and there too, I think. Some folks are wondering like what that ends up doing to your juniors. Like, is there yes. a junior tier? of software developers, 100%. if you're generating your sort of front first revs and your basic stuff with. How do you get your early career practice yeah. before you start working on big stuff? Yeah, absolutely. You don't want to lose that pipeline. The pipeline's not that wide anyway. Like I was looking at some of the numbers that he quoted in the late 90s, there was something like 21,000 CS graduates in the late 90s. And then 2021 was the latest data I saw. It was only, wasn't even 60,000 yet in the US. It's not like there's a whole lot of folks coming up that direction anyhow. I, I would expect that's a little better nowadays. Like it's still a pretty specialized role, but yeah, not to be a gatekeeper or anything. I don't think everybody can do it. I think about that a lot. Can anybody do tech? Probably. Can anybody become an architect, like the senior architect? Maybe not. Just like not everybody can become the CEO of a company, even if you have some business smarts. Like, sure. It's tricky. Like, what would an accessible career in tech look like? Absolutely. And I think, too, like part of the the stuff that gets missed, and I think something that is very absent in this book is like 
all the self-starters, all the folks who, who come into it with an interest versus like a uh, formal education. I get it. Like there, we have a lot of colleagues that were just like, I was interested in this. I built websites as a kid. And, you know, even if you got started on like Neopets or whatever, and that got you into tech and you came in that direction and you can still come up and be an amazing professional software developer. And like this idea of licensure and professional engineeringness leaves no space for those folks to come in and be at the same sort of echelon with those folks. So like a, the balance between sort of real world versus academic work comes back and rears its ugly head again. I wonder how soon we're going to start getting like co-ops who started off making stuff for Roblox or something. Yes. <laughs> it's going to start making me feel so old when that happens. It probably already, it's probably already true. They're probably already out there. Like They're probably already professionals. <laughs> yes. Instead of having paper routes, they're building custom stuff in Roblox. And- yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's how they got their start. That's, yeah. that's what got them interested. So I think I think as long as those kinds of paths can still exist somewhere, you know, putting aside whether it's appropriate for Roblox to kind of be exploiting. That's a whole other discussion. That's a whole yeah. other discussion. Maybe, maybe that's too deep to get into. We don't have an industry body. Like that was one of the things that like the WGA talks, like the WGA strike was kind of lucky that yeah. ChatGPT came out at just the right time and it became kind of interesting at just the right time and almost good enough to write a script at just the right time that they could bring that into their contractual agreements for the next four years or three years or whatever it is. And we don't really have that in software. I don't think we could do that. Again, I don't think anybody's in danger of losing their job tomorrow, but it's still tricky. It is tricky. It's like the same cohort of people are going to be creating these tools that are potentially going to be impacted by the tools. And there too, like, I don't see the ACM or IEEE coming in with a stance either way or trying to straddle that in any any way i it is interesting and like uh, we get to the point where we have more sort of white collar unions to sort of defend against some of this stuff uh, it's a whole other economic question that copyright is also a fun thing to talk about there but who gets the copyright if chat gpt writes a thing i think it's nobody well and, and where did it get the stuff in the first place and like hopefully it's not stealing your code from someone else that it shouldn't have been reading code from and that's a whole other bad smell yeah that's a bit of a tangent obviously they did not talk about chat gpt in this book no no. (laughs) No, i haven't touched on ai at all no i don't think it was in there at all i like which is weird because late 90s they like there was a lot of i don't say a lot because there wasn't a lot of anything but like there was significant work being done in neural nets and some other like early stuff. Sure. It just wasn't viable yet. It was all theoretical. Too expensive to, to put the hardware together to do it, which now we have a lot more. Like Google was one year old. They definitely weren't getting into deep mind or anything like that at their deep dream or anything like that. They were like, we have very good search. Yes. <laughs> and, and maybe some advertisements. Yes. Yeah. Obviously a lot has changed. <laughs> Yeah. With that too, like he talked a little bit about obsolescence and how that impacts people and how you maintain for that. And like, I got a chuckle out of the things he listed as things that could potentially be obsolete because that was beautiful. It was Java, Perl, HTML, C++, Linux, and Windows NT. Yeah. Windows NT wasn't really ever, I don't think it was ever meant to last forever because they they immediately pivoted away from it to Server 2000 or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, pour one out for Perl because that was one of my first languages. Java's making a weird comeback lately. Java is making a huge comeback. Yeah. 
I did not have that on my bingo card. <laughs> I did not either. I did not. Did not. I saw the Stack Overflow survey for this year and I was like, what is going on? Like, where is this coming from? I don't get it. Because Java was also a baby at that time. It was super new. It was the big trendy kid on the block. It was. Uh, yes. Java and Gang of Four and design patterns. Like, that was all the, the height of like enterprise being like the gold standard for the kind of development that you do. It feels more pejorative nowadays. Or it's like it's enterprise development. That means it's harder to understand. And you've got factory factories everywhere. Yes. <laughs> And like, I feel like across some of the, the slower moving parts of the industry, like stuff that was built at that time is still running. Oh, yeah. It's the major underpinnings of probably more of our financial system than we'd ever want to admit. And True. like the airplanes and airline software and all that kind of stuff is all of a certain vintage or even just the parts of the financial system that still depend on mailing checks around. God, Right. Like, I think there's still some of that. I think it's better than it used to be now that you can just like upload a photo of a check. Yes. Like that's kind of all they need. But I'm sure there are still some places that depend on mailing stuff around. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it's hilarious. It's funny because it, it still works. Like there's a trade-off there where it's like, it still works and it's probably going to keep working for a really long time. That's where I try not to put on too many errors when you see somebody like sketching something out in Excel or sure. like, you know, a small business that's using Excel for their accounting. It's probably fine for them. You know, you, you want to be careful about not saving over a file or something like that. But <laughs> definitely. Oh, definitely. So so like at a certain point, you want to probably move to something a little more sophisticated. Like there's there's a reason that those things last. It's because they worked. And there's always risk in migrating from off of stuff. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And you lose flexibility also. Like you can do some stuff in Excel that you probably can't do in, you know, whatever QuickBooks online or whatever. Yeah. It's kind of it's also kind of the point, though. Yes. You shouldn't be doing creative accounting. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, avoid creative accounting exactly. Definitely, yeah. I, w- I wouldn't want to do it just from the like the tax and withholding standpoint, like dealing with sales tax and all that stuff. But yeah, and like the other parts too that that was that kind of stuck out for me was like part of professional engineering is like having a code of ethics, and that kind of gave me a huge stomach ache about software development because like yo dog. Um, really, if anything, it made me think of um, uh, the Silicon Valley show. They always make a punchline out of it. Tethics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not an entirely mean-spirited punchline out of it either. It's like about like how any of these kinds of movements will be co-opted by like the assholes of the industry. Yeah. Pretend that they care about it like, in a performative way, but um, don't actually want to make any meaningful changes. Not to like spend this whole time talking about AI, but you also saw that in terms of like people being pushed out of companies. I know that's what happened at Google a little bit. Yes. And that happened at uh, the other place also. What is it? OpenAI. There's some folks, like, it, it, obviously there are allegations, like, I don't know, there might have been other issues in there, but just like uh, the people who got pushed out because they were criticizing the company, like there was some perception of that going on at OpenAI as well as at Google. So that's that's the sort of thing where it's like, there's always going to be a tension between being a business and like, how much can you criticize the company uh, without like destabilizing it? But it, it does give you pause. Do people have the best concerns of humanity in mind while they're building these tools? Not always. Well, sure. And like that really stuck out for me for the professionalization of software. Because like if you think about there was a lot of discussion after the reports came out about the Challenger explosion. And like I am of a certain age that that was a big part of my childhood. Just like seeing that on TV at school, like that's a core memory kind of thing. For sure. And so like following that over the years and like 
learning about the sort of hostile and toxic environments. And these probably are at some point professional engineers involved in that and they don't feel comfortable standing up for it and taking professional liabilities that of it. And then looking at like software development and can you push yourself on the line as a sort of professional and say, I don't, I'm not going to do this because it's unethical or it's wrong, but safe for the customers or the users and, and those kinds of things. And like the book does predict like big life impacting disasters yes. if you don't build that strong software engineering culture. And you do see that happening, like uh, the Boeing 737 MAX, like part of that was attributed to confusing control design. It's slightly unrelated. It's not necessarily about software design, but that's the point is like software engineering is not just the literal programming. It's also the maintenance and other things like that. And so you see some of that fallout in... Um, uh, the rise of ransomware attacks on hospitals and other kinds of critical infrastructure. Yes, like Right. Like who takes liability for not securing a hospital? Yeah. In the US, the VA has had lots of problems with this, private hospital systems. And like your lack of appropriate risk reduction, I guess, for lack of a, a better thought about it, yeah. is putting people at actual physical harm or at risk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, who's on the hook for that yeah like at one point is it the engineer's responsibility at the end of the day yeah but yeah in canada i think it's there are some use cases that require professional engineers i don't know how well that's enforced i feel like there's a lot of issues with the trades in general not being very good at enforcing that the people with expertise have to be the ones who do the thing like there's always a shortage of electricians so people are always taking side jobs like people are always trying to do it themselves and to some extent like i think it's legal to do electrical work on your own house because you're taking the risks on for yourself it's still not it's not great it's the population dynamics issue which is another the whole thing to get into where a lot of people are retiring and we haven't always trained enough people and you know in canada we're trying to bring in temporary foreign workers and things like that to cover some of those gaps. And it's not it's not great because we're losing a lot of that sort of institutional structure. Yeah, I, I have a whole side rant about that. <laughs> I could go on as a child who grew up in a rural area where like a third of my high school went to Votech. I have thoughts. Uh, that's but, fair. Yeah. Keep <laughs> them for different lecture. <laughs> it's so it's yeah, it touches on a lot of things that are still problems today, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah it really does. Like it's it's kind of sad that things aren't better 25 years on mm, mm. From, from when this was written. I don't know that they're worse per se. It definitely hasn't gotten better, particularly in terms of the ethics. But in terms of things that have gotten better, <laughs> code and fix development, like you could argue that Agile is just doing that, but faster. I was wondering about that. I wanted to ask you about that. Like he, he terms it code and fix. And there's, there's a whole bunch in here that's still like, some trauma about waterfall and there's a whole lot about requirements engineering, which, yeah. Oh my God. But yeah, code and fix versus agile and thinking like the agile manifesto came out just after this, like it was the same era, but it was a different group of dudes who, and it was all dudes who put the agile manifesto together in like 2000, 2001, I think. So like kind of at the same time. And I was a little surprised that he didn't really talk about that as a methodology or even as an, in its nascent sort of ideas. Because Extreme was around too. Like a bunch of those other weird things were going on to get things moving faster. Yeah, no, that's true. Like I, I want to say in 1999, you still couldn't assume that even Git source control was a thing. This, so it definitely wasn't an assumption like we have today, where it's like, you probably have your stuff on GitHub, 
even if it's private. And you have your selection of magic words that you use for Git, even if you don't know how it all works. <laughs> yeah, I'll totally. I have no idea what's going on under there. It's fine. But you know, you have your things like, oh, if I see this, I do this. <laughs> I think I've built a better understanding, like kind of gradually over time, but there was definitely, I think everybody has to go through that phase. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, like in terms of agile, just being code and fixed, but faster, I don't know. I think that's, that's just leaning into like the sort of strengths of software development, even though like the book calls out, no matter how carefully you design it, there's a point where it's no longer soft there's a point where you can no longer make it this this kind of change is no longer easy yes it's still leaning into the strengths of while it is soft you can um yeah well i think of that of all the stuff like we've definitely gone more that direction like every everybody wants to shift everything left right the idea of like you fix things earlier you're mitigating risks better you're saving yourself time because you can fix it early before it gets to production and gets set in concrete or whatever. Yeah, I wasn't exactly sure what his code and fix would actually look like in practice. Yeah, no, it's true. I'd, I kind of had some experience with that in my first job, like my first real software job, which might have been about 2009 or so. It was an interesting place to work. I won't name any names. You might have called it a 15-year-old startup. Like, I guess if anybody finds me on LinkedIn, you'll, you'll be able to see which company this was. But um, yeah, it was a, basically a 15 year old startup. It started out with um, an application that was written in Visual Basic 4. And then it was brought up through the generations. And it was in Visual Basic.net by the time I was working on it. <laughs> so yeah, it did not have a test suite. Oh, why would it? Yeah, of course. There's definitely a lot of duplicate code. But it was also interesting as a project that hadn't always been maintained by like professional software engineers, you might say, there was a lot of stuff that you might see in over-engineered projects and you just didn't see them there at all. Like there was no metaprogramming, like everything was just very straightforward. Like sometimes things could have effects that you didn't expect. You could almost always Google, like like search the code base for the variable that and see if it was still being used. Like there was very little clever stuff and that was, that was actually kind of nice now that I think back on it. There was also awful stuff like crystal reports. So that meant that you couldn't actually know if something was still in use or not because that was in a binary file but um it was definitely it had its trade-offs that it was in all negatives oh yeah oh, those are the days oh my gosh there's a couple other things before we wrap up i wanted to get your thoughts on too like in the chapter that's called through the pillars and for folks who read this like the chapter names are hysterical but he's talking about rarely used software innovations and of course this is 99 and he's talking about stuff that was sort of developed in the 1970s and I'm reading down through some of these and I get to stuff that like we know now is bad practice. And of course, like the one that like change boards and some of that stuff that just kind of is there to get in the way of getting anything quality out the door. And like, it kind of struck me like, okay, well, if we don't have like, well, it feels like we do have that nowadays. Like it's, it's a Jira. I guess like we have software reviews, right? Yeah. But like we don't ship things off to like a change review board that's like made up of folks who haven't touched the code, I guess. Like at PageDuty, we have the architecture strategy team. Usually they review like if somebody has was like, I would like to use AWS Blippity Blops on my next project. You bring that to the architecture strategy team and you talk about, you know, the trade-offs. Why why does this solve a problem for you that nothing else does? I think I've been very lucky in the places that I've worked in that they have had pretty good processes for those kinds of things. Yeah, I, I feel like we have maybe left some of the bad stuff behind. Yeah. Nobody likes Jira, I think. 
it's the devil we know and it's the the best thing that we have yes. right now you know they even acquired trello because they you know they were probably their best competitor uh, and it, trello did not do quite as much as jira does no but we use both of them so yeah yeah, yeah. exactly it's some teams on one we use trello some of them were now using asana some of them yeah stuff so yeah. yeah so we're moving to yeah. monday.com yeah. at some point this year so we do all right, but some, there's still like the expectation sometimes that a buzzword will fix everything. Yes. Like Agile, like Scrum, like TDD. So that's still true. The DevOps trend. That was going to solve everyone's problems. And the gold rushes keep happening also. Generative yes. AI, blockchain, like there's been a few of those. Yeah. The gold rushes that he mentions, the, the essay that the book is named for, were like the PC revolution or whatever. Yeah. And then moving from server workstation architecture intranet which kind of only sniffs out a little bit but then like as we get into like new ones the new gold rushes like you mentioned like ai and even like cryptocurrencies and stuff like that like i don't feel like the earlier ones really impacted lay people as much as stuff does now like there's a lot more consumer technology True. and consumer facing technology and all the stuff now that really hits the zeitgeist then there, there probably would have been at that point. Like, I don't think anybody I knew in the 90s cared about server workstation architectures. And Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting one where, like, the thin client, thick server, like, that that sort of is like a ball that bounces back and forth also all the time. Always. Especially now with phones and so many people doing so much of their interactions with the phone and having, like, limited bandwidth and limited storage space and, yeah, yeah. and all that stuff. Or even uh, even things like people looking into server-side rendering to make their web applications faster. It's like, we had that. It was called HTML. We did that. <laughs> it's a little more complicated than that, of course. But it was it's it's fun to say the pithy thing sometimes. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. It's like, we're, we're just going in circles. It's fine. I don't know if you put it exactly this way, but like acquisitions is a mechanism for externalizing R&D. Like in the, the, the late 90s were also that period of like, companies gobbling up other companies and just getting bigger and bigger. And that's that's definitely still happening. And to a certain extent, I get it. Like, why spend your own money trying to figure out the best solution? Like, you just count on the market to do a thousand experiments for you and acquire the best one. Like, Absolutely. Um, I, I get it. Uh, sometimes you're sad that you don't get to work on the shiny thing that other people got to. But obviously, these are the kinds of decisions that everybody sort of has to just try to work through. Yeah. And sometimes that stuff pans out. Sometimes it doesn't. Things get acquired and they disappear. Or... Yeah stuff like github i like people freaked the heck out when when that got bought and it seems fine so instead of this book are there other things that you might recommend definitely i really liked the phoenix project by um gene kim and a few others it's also it was written in 2005 and it was part of kicking off the devops movement like it's the same people who wrote it's called the devops bible or something like that uh, so the Phoenix Project is um, is more fiction, like it's a novel basically about a company at the end of a very tough project, just trying to get it out the door. Maybe it's a bit more of a manager book, but I still re really liked it as an individual contributor about like how to pull yourself out of that hole. Yes. It was really nice. And I also really like Kill It With Fire by Marion Bellotti. Uh, that's a newer book, maybe just in the past few years or so. Yeah. It's about like dealing with legacy software also and pulling yourself out of a legacy software hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I had seen that one when it came out and then it's it's in my TBR, but I, I didn't put it on. I don't know why I didn't put it on the list for potentials for the podcast. So I think I'm going to add that to the potentials for, for later in the year. If anybody out there wants to join us and talk about that one, we'll, we'll look at it at some point. 
the follow-up to the Phoenix Project is called the Unicorn Project. That's also mm-hmm. Gene. And it's a slightly different perspective. Like, there again, they're working on a legacy project. And there's the usual cast of crazy characters and, and things going on there. So, yeah. Thanks for coming on. And thanks for chatting with me on this one. We'll put some stuff in the show notes for folks who are interested in either of the, of, of the recommendations and some of the other things we looked up. And like I said, this book is easy to get, usually. Um, like I said, it's cheap. Uh, as a used book for folks who are sort of curious about what it, it might take to turn software development into real software engineering and whether or not we should even bother. Oh, yeah. And because uh, I was trying to get this in time for the podcast, I actually ended up with two copies. So reach out if you would like it. <laughs> yeah, if anybody would like a uh, nice extra copy, um, you can email my team. We're community-team at pagerd.com. We're always up for interesting comments as well. If you'd like a copy uh, we can send that extra one out to you. I'll put in some Pager Duty stickers at least. Awesome. <laughs> we love Pager Duty stickers. Sweet. So yeah, we'll be back uh, with a regular episode in a couple of weeks and we'll be back next month with another book club episode. If you'd like to be a guest or if you also have a book recommendation, let us know. Like I said, we're community-team at pagerduty.com. Or I've also got a form. I'll put it in the show notes. It's bit.ly slash page book club because um, I'm scheduling things out between like now and June for all the upcoming episodes. And we'd love to chat with folks who want to read interesting books about tech. So thanks for joining us. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for joining me today, Holly. Thanks also. Bye, everybody. That does it for another installment of Pager to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pagertothelimit.com and you can reach us on Twitter at pagertothelimit using the number two. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days. <laughs>